are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Titus, this, these instructions Paul is leaving for his uh, apostolic appointee, the one who is ministering on his behalf on the island of Crete, the new churches all throughout the island. Titus is going throughout the island to proclaim the gospel, to bring order to the churches that are there, to appoint elders, to instruct them how to live. And we're concluding a section here, a short little section, verses 11 through 14, that's providing the, the, the theological basis for these commands that he gave us earlier in chapter two. These commands of how to live the Christian life, how to live in the household of faith. Now he's giving us the theological reasons that we are saved by a great savior. And he is working in us to make us zealous for good works. And so today we're wrapping up this little section as we look back upon how we are called to live the Christian life. So let's Turn our attention to the reading of God's word. We'll read those, this whole section, verses 11 through 14 of chapter two. So now give ear and pay heed to the inspired, the inerrant and infallible word of God, which is given for us this evening that we might hear and understand. So hear now this word of God from Titus chapter two. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, this question I'm about to put to you is appropriate given our prayer request this evening. Have you ever shared the gospel with anyone before? Have you had the opportunity to sit down and speak with somebody of the gospel of Jesus Christ? One of my favorite questions to ask in our new members class is, what is the gospel? Can you explain the gospel or our new members interviews uh, when, after they've taken the class when, we, when they meet with the elders? What is the gospel? If I asked you that question, what would you say? What is the gospel? Is it we have to, we now live a, a life, a new life? Is that the gospel? I think this verse that we've come to today, verse 14, is a wonderful verse to keep in your back pocket a wonderful verse that comes and condenses the gospel truth down to one place, one verse that tells us what the gospel is, this good news, this proclamation that Jesus Christ has come for sinners. The gospel is not what I do. The gospel is not how we live our lives. The gospel is what Jesus Christ has done for sinners. Really, this verse, verse 14, is an explanation of how Paul ended verse 13. He talks about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's explaining that word Savior. How has he saved? What is it that Christ has done to save? The gospel is how Jesus saves. 
The gospel is that proclamation of the work of Christ for sinners and calls for a response of faith. We're going to focus on the three verbs that appear in verse 14. These three verbs that describe Christ's saving work. Gave, redeem, and purify. So let's look at these these verbs. First is he gave. This Christ who gave himself for us. And let's stop and think simply about that verb for a moment. He gave. A savior who gives. And I've said several times this word savior, it seems like Paul is emphasizing it in this this, uh, book, this letter to Titus. He's emphasizing it here more than in his other writings. And that's likely because savior was a very popular title in Crete given to their gods. And we know from archaeological findings today that that term savior is used in the island of Crete often to speak of their Cretan gods. And so Paul is using this word to say, no, these are false saviors. Here's the savior. And he's explaining that this savior, the real savior, is a savior who gives. He's not like the Cretan gods, the Cretan saviors who demand. This is what all the Roman gods were like. They were all capricious. They all demanded from you. You always wanted to get on their good side. You were always trying to appease them. They demanded from you something so that you could get a favor from the gods in return. That is not the God, our God, Jesus Christ. This Savior gives. He doesn't demand. He gives to his people generously and graciously and kindly. He gives freely. He gives of grace. The giving of Jesus Christ is not in response to our good works. It's not because we've appeased him. It's not because we're inherently good in and of ourselves. He gives out of his deep well of eternal love. Think of that for a moment. Your Savior gives. But it's not like he gives a mere present, something that you buy at the store and give to somebody else. The Savior is given himself given himself. This language is used all through scripture to speak of the cross of Jesus Christ, where he there in that place on that day gave of himself. Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep. Although to the world, it looked like some great injustice was being done and indeed an injustice was being done that day. But Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. Jesus had not lost control that day. He was hung upon the cross. But that was a moment of Jesus giving. He had complete control, complete authority, authority even as he was hoisted on the cross to his death. That was Jesus Christ giving his very self. What was he giving it for? It's for us. He gave his self. He gave his life. He gave his person for us. This preposition for means on behalf of, in the stead of, in the place of. This is that substitution language that we cling hold of so dearly. Christ died as a substitute. He gave himself because we deserve the cross. We deserve the eternal judgment. But Christ gave himself for us, taking the punishment in our stead. 
And as we step, step back and think of this Savior who gives, many implications here, but one we must take to heart is that you, beloved, are valuable. You, beloved, are loved. Though many struggle with it, and indeed it is the, the talk often of in the world all the time, the Christian should never have, Christian need never have low self-esteem, low self-worth, because you are valuable to the God of heaven and earth who gave himself for you. You are so valuable that Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. What does that say about your value? What does that say about who you are in the eyes of the creator of heaven and earth? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us. And these other two verbs that we see all flow from this one reality, this one historical reality. Now Paul goes on to explain it theologically. Christ gave himself. Now what happens with that giving? And indeed in the ongoing ministry of Christ. Christ is done, he's doing two things through the giving. One, he redeems. He redeems. This is a central word used in all of the, the scripture to talk about Christ's atoning work. Christ's death on the cross, what is happening there? He is redeeming. And it's so important, even our church is named after this. Redeemer church, the one who redeems. We are a redeemed people. And as you probably know, the word redeem is a commercial term. It's when used in business and particularly to buy someone out of slavery, out of bondage, to buy someone who has a debt as a, and is a servant. You buy them out by paying the debt that they owe and then they're free. This is Israel in the Old Testament. We read of this earlier from Deuteronomy 7. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of slavery. Israel was a redeemed people, redeemed from Pharaoh, redeemed from slavery. All this grand, this is a part of a grand picture that God's painting of the even deeper slavery that you and I, and indeed Israel was in as well. A slavery to sin. A slavery not to a mere man who makes you make bricks without straw, but to sin itself, which destroys. Paul says that we are redeemed from all lawlessness, from all lawlessness. This word lawless is interesting. It's the word law with a not at the beginning. So for not lawness, you've been redeemed from all not lawness. Anytime you have not abided by the law, anytime the law is not describing your behavior, that's a sin. And some translations go straight out and just say sin here, redeemed us from all sin. And that's exactly the point that's being made here by Paul. You've redeemed, you, you're being redeemed from all of the debt that you've accrued from your sin. Not just some sins, not just the sins that you get really serious about. It says all sins, all lawlessness. You've been, been redeemed, purchased back. All of your sins are redeemed and forgiven and removed. And this word redeemed 
revolves around this major theological doctrine that we often talk about called justification. You have been redeemed. You have been justified. You've been forgiven. You've been declared righteous because of what Christ has done. Your sins are forgiven because they were taken upon Christ on the cross. You are now perfect in the sight of God because all the perfection Christ has attained is now yours. Redeemed. And what this means is now positionally before God, as Mark prayed earlier, we are all now redeemed saints. Every believer now before God is a redeemed saint. You have a new identity. This is why Paul said earlier in verse 12, you must renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. You must renounce them all because that's not who you are. You're redeemed. You're a redeemed saint. You are now holy in the sight of God. Positionally, you are different. You must renounce that all and fundamentally consider yourself a redeemed person because of the grace of God. No longer can these other identities describe you as we'll see in a moment. You must consider yourself a redeemed saint. You've been bought from sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. Oh yes, we wrestle with sin every day of our life, but ultimately sin does not have dominion over us. Does the Lord Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior who has redeemed us. And Paul continues explaining what this giving of Christ does. It redeems us and we come to our third verb. It purifies. It purifies. This is again, Paul is pulling out Old Testament language. This language used as we went through Leviticus, right? Talking all about the cleansing with this blood, all the ceremonial laws of cleansing that we can come near and approach the holiness of God. It's language of being cleansed to ceremonially be fit for the dwelling place of God with man. And of course, that points to the deeper spiritual reality as well. The moral cleansing of us of our remaining sin. It creates in us a moral fitness to dwell with God. You're purified by the blood of Christ shed for you. And it's interesting what he says here. Why are we being purified? Purification, not simply for the sake of being purified, but purified for himself. Christ purifies his people for himself. Salvation is God-focused. Salvation is not ultimately about me. It's all about God. It's not that he needs us or somehow is using us to, 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 to feel greater in his own mind or something like that. But the end of all of our salvation is God and the glory of God. Reminds me of Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. All things God is designing for his own glory. That includes your salvation. It's ultimately not about you. Your salvation is designed to glorify God, the gracious one. We're being purified for himself, for him. And he's purifying for himself a people for his own possession a people for his own possession, a people that belong to him, a people that call upon him, a people that he looks at and says, mine. A people that he looks at and says, these are my cherished people of all the people in the earth. And he says, 
He reminded Israel, it's not because you're wonderful. It's not because you're great. Not because you're powerful. And in fact, you're some of the least of all of the earth. But you're mine. I'm redeeming you. I'm purifying you. You are my people. And I love you. This is a new belonging that we have. This is a new identity that is ours. We have a God who rules and who reigns and who loves and who provides for us. This is an identity far more permanent, far far more stable and enriching and satisfying than any other identity this world offers. A child of God, belonging to him, being in Christ, united to him, redeemed and purified by him. This is who we are. This language of people of his own possession, it's echoed in so many of our confessional documents, but I think of Heidelberg that we often recite on Sunday mornings. The first question says, I with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's as if they're picking up this language directly. I'm not my own, but I'm his belonging. He's my Savior my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We can't bear the weight of belonging to ourselves. It's a weight that is crushing, creating our own identity, being tossed to and fro by our own desires. It destroys. But this identity given by Christ, a redeemed, purified identity, is what will persist forever and ever and ever. No one can steal it from you. No one can deny it with any effect. It is yours. It is true no matter what happens to you in your life. You're not your own, but you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is ultimately your only comfort you have in life and in death. There's no other comfort outside of this, that you belong to Jesus Christ. Every other comfort you look to will fail you. Why do, we cons- why do we keep going back over and over and over to those same idols that we think will fulfill us this time? They offer death and nothing else. This major theological doctrine here of which Paul speaks with purification is sanctification. Sanctification literally, literally comes from the Latin to sanctify is to holy, to make something holy, to holify Holification, we are being made more holy in our lives, on throughout our lives, on and on. Because of this new identity that is ours in Christ, Christ will not stop the task of removing remaining sin from our lives. Christ won't let you go. Christ isn't going to leave you to your own devices. It's not like we trust in Christ and we're saved and we're good and we're just now on our own for the rest of our lives. This Christ who's redeemed you is purifying you. He's still at work. To your dying day, he's not going to let you go. He's working in your heart to make you more like himself. And Paul gives us the application of this here. Being purified or being sanctified, this outworking of this purification affects our lives today. As Paul says, we're purified to serve. We're zealous for good works. We're zealous for good works. We desire, above all, to do good works, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to care for other people, 
There's now a, a new desire for the good of other people. This ongoing process of purifying our desires and our wants results in us loving good works more, being zealous for good works more, not saying, oh, the law doesn't matter. I'm going to keep sinning so that grace can abound. By no means. As we see what Christ has done, do we not then desire in response of gratitude to serve him? To live as he's called us to be? To live consistent with this identity that he has given us? Redeemed new life people? Do you ever find yourself wanting to serve other people? Have you ever found yourself doing that? Not even for your own good, but for somebody else's good? Well, take that as confirmation that the Lord is at work in you. That God is at work in your life and pray that he would make that happen more and more, cultivating that desire for the good of others, the love of others. This is that theological basis for all of the commands of the first half of this chapter. This is it, that you are now a new creation and now let's go live consistent with that. Out of gratitude for this great redeeming work, let's be zealous for good works. As older men are called to be sober-minded and dignified, sound in faith, and on and on and on. Do that because you're redeemed. Older women who are called to be reverent and to, to teach what is good, you're redeemed. Therefore, you can go and do these things. Younger women who are called to be self-controlled and younger men who are called to be self-controlled, do this because you're redeemed. You're no longer in bondage to yourself and your own desires. You can now control your desires. Yes, warring against sin and indwelling sin and the devil. Yes, we war against it, but you ultimately now can be self-controlled in Christ. Bond servants, be submissive and adorn the doctrine of God our Savior with serving your master with all that you have. Because you're redeemed. Redeemed from sin, redeemed from slavery. We all have a calling to good works inside and outside of the church, being redeemed people. This threefold statement is the gospel of grace of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself, he redeems, and he purifies. Remember that, keep that. The next time you're talking with a friend who doesn't know Christ, remember these things. He gave himself, remember the cross, what he's done for his people. He redeems and he purifies. That's what the cross means for us today. This is what Christ has done and what it means. But all of this, and all of this, Paul speaks, speaks of this as the us. The us of the household of faith. God gave himself, Christ gave himself for us. He redeems us. He purifies us. That us is the household of faith. All of those who are looking to Christ, of those who belong to his bride, those who have publicly professed their sins, this is whom the us is for. So these promises are for us. They are for those who call upon Jesus Christ. And you can have confidence that these things are true. Isn't it so easy to go about our daily lives and to 
pretend like this doesn't matter, to pretend like these things aren't true, to forget about these things, and now to begin living in, in, in light of, of what the world says about me instead of what God says about me. But these promises are true, and we come back to them over and over, week by week, Sunday morning and Sunday evening, because we need to remember these things. We need to grab hold of these promises of God that you, he has been, he's given himself for you, that he redeems you, that he purifies you, all who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. So take these promises to heart and know that Christ is still at work in you. These promises depend on Christ and what he has done, not upon you, not upon how good of a week you've had, but upon Jesus Christ. So don't allow the devil to steal your joy, but take comfort in the good of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus gave himself. He redeems. He purifies even undeserving sinners like us. Let's praise him for this and live our life of gratitude, of good works as a result. Let's look to him in prayer. Gracious Father, words cannot express the thankfulness knowing the love of Christ for us. Though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave himself for us in our stead and redeemed us and purifies us. Lord, grow us in our faith to cling to these very precious promises. Allow us to enjoy them every day of our lives. And may we live confidently before you thankful for all that you have done, being zealous for good works. Bless us, and even this week, may we do this for your glory, for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.